Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, economics all over the headlines. We're going to go to our go to on it, Jericho Hill. He works for one of them four letter, not three letter, I was corrected last time, four letter government agencies, but his opinion are his and his alone, unless they're correct. And then he really wants them to be his. Jericho Hill, how are you, my friend? Doing pretty good today. All right, let's try this real slow using small words for the folks from Logan and try to get through this one more time. Gas prices are a lagging indicator. Can you please explain why gas prices are a lagging indicator? Because we still seem to have problems understanding in the United States of America in the year of our Lord 2022. Gas prices are a lagging indicator. Uh, You should first specify they're a lagging indicator of what? Darn you, Jericho. Just answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) about economic conditions and whatnot. So, so yeah, so the point that, that Andrew, you're trying to, to, to make is that what causes gas prices to rise, a lot of that's been set months or years in advance. And so, for example, you know, if you make investments um, into more green energy technology, which takes, you know, several years to ramp up, um, those investments are not going to um, non-green to, to natural gas or to fossil fuels or stuff like that. So there's less capacity to ramp up. So when events happen, like what we've seen with COVID, there's an immediate sort of reaction. But then in terms of uh, being able to accommodate that new supply, I mean, I'm sorry, not supply, that new demand, right? Uh, you have to change your production and that takes time. Now, it's the easiest thing in the world for me to just go, this current debate over gas prices and blame and Putin and Biden, this isn't hard. Like gas prices were going up because we had a Democratic candidate who said, I'm going to end fossil fuels in America. That's going to have an effect. He has policies to that end. He wants more electric vehicles, so on and so forth. That's been his policy for a year. That affects gas prices in a lagging way. Some of the gas prices were already going up because of what happened before he came into office. Then Putin invades Ukraine. That raises the already high gas prices up. This does not seem that hard to me to have a delineation line of, okay, gas prices are Biden's fault up until this point, and then Putin made it worse from this point forward. Why can't we just discuss it that way? But no, we have to have a White House that says gas prices are all Putin's fault, and then the media goes nuts and go, no, they're all Biden's fault. It's, it's, there's this middle ground that we just skip over. Why do we do that? Uh, we skip over it because nobody wants to talk about the nuance of the middle ground. Um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't send out uh, letters for fundraising. It doesn't 
uh, get people to answer the robocalls for, for, for more funds, et cetera, and it doesn't get those angry letters that are, that are sent in. Um, I, I think that that's part and parcel of why. I mean, and, and you're right. Look, we, we did. We had a changeover in admin from from less from from friendly to, to fossil fuels to less friendly to fossil fuels. We had a pandemic that radically changed things. We had um, not just a response to like, you know, tr- trucks and tankers getting in, you know, to, to, to get the gas and whatnot. But, you know, now we've got a response from folks being like, well, I don't really, you know, I, I need to commute more or I need to commute less. You know, some folks like myself don't even commute hardly anymore, um, which which changes the calculus. You know, but but you're right. The, the, I, I find it hard to um, pin the blame 100 percent on a president for for lots of things that, that happened, mainly because, like, you know, if we think about it, right, COVID and a war not really anything that anyone right could control even the most darling of the right and the most darling of the left so you know those things happen so then what are the responses and i think i'm going to tee you up on the next part that i think you want to go into is you know biden has the biden administration has recently come out and said well here's our here's our new budget idea our new package of spending and plans and whatnot and this is going to help reduce the deficit and this is going to help lower the inflation and this is one of those where I'm going to go, yeah, yeah. If if we accept certain assumptions that they're making about how the spending will work and how it will go fund fund things, that that's very plausible. But it's also, yeah, but um, it works over years, right? It doesn't work over days, weeks, or months. So you can. You know, you can put all these. You know, you could say let's let's be exceedingly charitable and let's say yes, they're entirely right. We grant them that point. Five years down the road, these investments that we're making are going to increase the productivity of our economy, handle supply chain issues, and lower the overall rate of inflation. Right? Okay, but that's five years from today. That's that's not next year. That's not six months from now. Um, they're not going to do a whole lot in the next six months. The next six months are um, entirely predicated on um, how we continue to sort of come out of the pandemic into a quote, new normal, what happens in Europe. Um, And to be fair, I think maybe some folks might not appreciate this, but as economists we do, it's not just the war disrupting, you know, energy flow, you know, out there in, in Europe right now. It's the fact that there's an extremely large amount of uncertainty in the market about what's gonna happen two months, three months, six months from now that we didn't really have. And that uncertainty is a price premium and we're all gonna pay it. Welcome to Jericho Hill, our economist friend. Okay, define uncertainty then because people don't seem, you know, I have trouble getting my head around this too. We see things physically happening in the news, Ukraine, natural disasters, policies like pipelines being canceled, pipelines being approved. Nord Stream, Keystone, we can get our head around all that stuff. But the way markets work and the way the global economy work is the real decision makers and shot callers, they're trying to guess what's going to happen ahead of time. And when things like this happen, they don't know what's going to happen. That creates uncertainty. And that's almost as damaging in and of itself as whatever the breaking headline news is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, let's just say you're a widget maker, right? And you're looking at an uncertain economic time or, or your uncertainty has increased. You don't know if the economy is going to be booming more or we're going to go into a recession. 
and you're responsible for making widgets for a bunch of folks. So now you've got to adjust your forecast of how many widgets you need to produce for that uncertainty. That that's that's the fundamental problem, and you know it, it's something that we all deal with. But that's you know getting getting beyond just the 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 what you might say the the rich people making you know bets of what's gonna what things are gonna be like six months from now. I mean just just down to more brass tacks. If you're if you're trying to plan for what you need, if you're a business and you're trying to figure out what do I need to have in stock three months from now, well, you know the war changes things a little bit. You know the that that's part of the uncertainty that that yeah we we maybe don't appreciate. Yeah, talking to Jericho Hill. Let's talk about something that economists have to deal in numbers. They have to deal in facts. They can't deal in unknown unknowns and known unknowns, as Rumsfeld famously said. Sometimes we try and fail. Yeah, it's a great line, though. What about, a, line. what about an economy like the UK? And I know you're an American economist, but where they, they've tolerated Russian money to a huge extent, there's just a river of oligarch money going through London. Of course, London's a financial center for the entire world. We've seen where Deutsche Bank you know, basically flat out refuses to even look at all their Russian money that goes through them. There's a lot of economy and a lot of the world economy that is unseen because it's just not tracked properly because it's designed to be that way. And when that gets interrupted, it starts showing up in the things that we do track. How does economists deal with that? Because that's a great unknown. It's, it's kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Everybody oh. knows it's there. But now we know for a fact it's getting disrupted, especially in England, when you see like Abramovich is losing Chelsea yeah. and things like that. They, they can't hide it now. How do you adjust that into when you're looking at economic stuff? Well, for an economy such as like Great Britain or from the U.S., you know, for the most part, if one foreign country withdraws a substantial amount of, of inflow, you know, for whatever reason, uh, it's you know, it's unlikely to to feel more than just maybe a speed bump when you're going a little bit too fast because those economies are so big, right? Um, what I think is more difficult to sort of figure out is exactly what exactly where the money is, and I want to I want to pivot to talking about yachts. So, you know, lots of commentators were like, let's just seize all the Russian yachts, let's seize all the oligarch yachts, right? You know, punish them, and and of course we know some of those yachts, like we we know who owns them. A couple of them have been seized, but so many of these sort of high end ticket items, such as super yachts, are owned through shell companies through shell companies, through management companies, you know, in, in a pretty uh, um, ob obscured uh, ownership structure. So how do, you, how do you really figure out exactly how much Russian money uh, is in, you know, the British economy or the U.S. economy when certainly yachts are not the only thing that these complicated uh, business uh, arrangements are, 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 are done? Yeah, talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend, we're going to break down some of those uh, economic sanctions, what's opposed, what actually bites, what matters, what doesn't, what's noise. Uh, also talk a little bit more about the overall economic conditions. Our friend Jericho Hill, making economic things so easy to understand, even I can understand them when we come back on Hurt Tip.
Uh, our friend Jericho Hills joining us here on Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining us. Of course, the ethos of an economist is bad times don't last, but bad economics always last. Let me, that's a Scott Hall reference who passed away. We'll talk a little wrestling at the end. Uh, I, I very much appreciated that reference. <laughs> there you go. Rest in peace, Scott Hall. But talking about some bad guys here, we were just talking about the dirty money, the oligarch money. Talk about, because you're an economist, but you're also a sports fan, you keep up with the culture. Explain to folks the ultra-wealthy, things like a sports team, like a Chelsea, things like a yacht. Those aren't just token toys. Those are also ways of parking money when you basically have no way to park massive amounts of money, any other way to do it, and you got to put it somewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, art is another great example of a way to park money. Um but but certainly so of course some of the some of the folks that you know invest in in sports teams do a very good job of increasing you know that investment and treating it like a business and, and others it, it is simply just as you said uh, a money dump there's uh, i think this might be less of an issue for for most uh american sports leagues but certainly soccer throughout the world is a sort of well-known dumping ground for for some of this um real estate is another um, dumping ground, um, you know, lots of, uh, uh, there's also lots of, you know, uh, obfuscated uh, real estate holdings. So for, uh, at the very high end, it doesn't affect the average person and trying to buy a house. People don't buy homes that are hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Unless you're filthy rich. Um, but, you know, who exactly holds those very high end uh, real estate, you know, homes, you know, is, is another thing where, you know, you may not necessarily know who actually, you know, owns that house. Um, but it's there to, to park money. It's a diversification strategy. Now, Wu-Tang. <laughs> Wu-Tang Financial. Uh, talking to Jericho Hill, master of many things, but mostly economic things. Okay, when we have an uncertainty like the Ukraine situation, this looks like it's going to be at least a semi-protracted war, at least through the summer, probably at the very least. How does the market start to adjust? Because they can't just keep bouncing out of fear and uncertainty. They're going to settle on something, especially if this starts looking like it's going to go for a while. What do you, because remember before this, we thought we pretty much had this summer economically figured out. The Fed's going to yep. raise interest rates three or four times. Yep. Uh, we're going to have an election year. So they're going to, they're going to, you know, Jimmy the money. We're going to have another stimulus package so they can run on that. We, we thought were we inflation under control. Yeah. Like we everything thought we, looked great. Yeah. We thought we had this computer. year under control. Look, at some point though, the powers that be are going to make a decision on what path to take. How do you think that shakes out here in the near term, probably over the next two, three months? Uh, I think I first have to say there's a lot of personal bias here about that path because um, I apparently have more than a quarter of Ukrainian blood in me. Um, so I have uh, a little bit of a loyalty sympathy here. I don't see this conflict ending um, nicely. I don't see it ending a whole lot anytime soon. It's going to cost Russia quite a bit. You know, their economy is already, you know, quite hurting. You've, you can watch the, the ruble essentially do a roller coaster free fall. Um, and you can watch videos now of folks fighting for stuff in grocery stores, which is reminiscent of another time when Russia used to be called the Soviet Union. Now, um, you know, how it all, you know, I, I wish I could say how it would all shake out. I, I don't know what the military situation is going to look like. I, I certainly have, you know, hopes that, that some Ukrainian solution is found uh, to the benefit of the Ukraine people. Uh, I feel great, feel badly for them um, and have been doing what I can to, to, to support the Ukrainian Red Cross and other such organizations that desperately need help. Um, you know, but 
you know, think about Europe now. And this is like in the short run, let, let, let's be a little more optimistic within the short run. Uh, Europe is going to suffer from pretty high uh, heating bills and, and, and energy prices too, because they're shutting down a lot of the, uh, a lot of the oil and gas investments they were doing. And now you've got Germany saying, oops, maybe we don't want to shut down the nuclear power plants that we were planning on doing. Uh, maybe the best thing to be green is to actually build more nuclear power plants. Uh, I think that would be a really, really good change. Yeah, I, I've kind of, you know, we love our analogies here. I've, I've taken the call it like Jules Verne. You know, he got an astonishing amount of things right on Journey to the Moon that, you know, three guys on a couch, we put three guys on a couch in a capsule. He used a projectile. It was a capsule. They had to, the like, he got a lot of stuff really right. The problem was we needed to wait 84 years to NASA to figure out the really important stuff. Like, hey, let's not use a cannon. Let's build a Saturn V and get it up in the low Earth orbit. I think that's where we're at with some of the energy stuff right now, where we can see the solution. We've figured out kind of the big picture part. Of, okay, this is possible. And here's how we do it. But there's a whole lot of people that are still in the science fiction realm of, oh, we'll just put them in a cannon and shoot them up there. And that's how they're kind of dealing with these energy crisis stuff. That's not how the world works. We can see it, but we're still 40, 50, 60 years, whatever, maybe sooner with technology from really changing how energy, especially geopolitical energy and how practical energy for the poorer folks in the world are. Am I wrong in using that kind of analogy of like people can see it and then things like Putin kind of bring it back and focus like, okay, we're not as close as we are. I think Putin's action might have accelerated that timeline a little bit uh, for the Western world. Now, yeah, I think you're right. And when we, we just talked about substituting, you know, uh, coal power plants for uh, instead of uh, and, and use nuclear power plants instead. Right. And, and seeing maybe there'll be a lack of environmental activism against uh, against nuclear power plants now going forward, particularly in Europe, um, although nuclear power has been pretty stalled here in the U.S. as well, which is unfortunate, um, you know. As an aside, right, I used to work for a power company. So, you know, I like to think I know one or two things about power generation. So I'm going to bring some of that knowledge here. Uh, even if we today could build, you know, 100 nuclear power plants and we actually had a site to put them, the uh, distribution of that power is yet another complication. And our energy grid uh, still desperately needs repairs. It needs upgrading. You would need a lot of more additional substations. You need some, you know, substation infrastructure upgrades. I don't know what you do about the Texas power grid. That thing's a mess. Um, yeah, you know. So just think about all those moving parts. We we are still a long ways away from from being able to to move our economy off of uh, oil and coal. And this is what frustrates me about it is because we've had this technology for fifty years, sixty years. If we would have done this 30, 40 years ago, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. And that's the part I never hear anybody talk about is like econo economically, energy wise, clean wise. If we hadn't done all this silly moratorium stuff and kind of shot ourselves in the foot, we would be in a completely different place right now. Folks don't want to talk about that piece of it of, hey, we kind of dropped the ball on some of this if we would have just done it back then. I know the technology's gotten a little better. I know Three Mile Island. I know Chernobyl. But I mean, God, Chernobyl was 40 years ago. You don't think our technology is better? Well, and we now know Chernobyl was not a nuclear accident. It was a bureaucratic accident. Yeah. And also with Three Mile Island was actually a success story in the sense that exactly right. it happened and all of our safeguards worked. Um, and that's the point of a safeguard. Um, you know, also keep in mind that you know um this is economics right people respond to incentives price is an is an incentive right so 
we have long enjoyed in, in the U.S. very cheap energy. So the political pressure to move off of that, to make investments that are costly up front, that are cheaper in the long run, but are costly up front, there's not the political will to do that. Much like, and that's part of, I think, to go back, to come back to earlier, that's part of the problem the Biden administration faces when they're arguing, hey, our spending plan that we're putting forward is going to help lower inflation and reduce the budget deficit. Because if we take them at face value and agree with their assumptions and agree that that's, that's what happens, it still is an effect that happens over time. And voters are not going to be voting on a policy that's going to help them in 10 years when they're wanting help in six months. Yeah, we're talking to our friend Jericho Hill, an economist. We're going to continue with him right after this as Hertel continues. Is it going to be six months, though? Because this feels like something that's going to have kind of a an immediate and intermarian and a long-term effect. Oh, I was I was just picking six months as a show as as as, a, as an example, like you know, like six months from now we're going to be having an election, right? You might have all the best policies in the world, but guess what? If you're not helping people when they're wanting to walk into the poll booth, like you can go back and you can see, like you know, think about you know how like when we've seen changeovers in admin, particularly partisan changeovers in admin, it's always been related to some sort of crisis, which some what was the fault of the prior admin and some of that was actually just how the world works you know and stuff outside of their control you know it's akin to um a ship captain basically running into a storm which the ship captain could not control and then the ship captain makes the wrong decision when they get into the storm and some folks get hurt well the people that get hurt on this stuff though i'm talking to jericho hill economist uh four letter uh, organization dweller. My friend, the people that get hurt on this stuff, and you know this well because you focus a lot on housing and things like this. The problem with this is we talk about it online and the policy people have these great ideas about, oh, we're going to fix the energy problem. We're going to fix fuel prices. But it's the poorer folks and it's the underprivileged folks and it's the working class folks that are going to really get whacked hard on all these policies. We talked about it with the EVs online. We're like, yeah, yeah, Secretary Buttigieg, you can tell everybody to go buy a $50,000 car, but that's not in a lot of people's budget. If they can't afford $5 gas, they're not going to go buy a $50,000 car to save $2 on gas. That's not how that works. No, they're going to have to buy an overly priced used car at this point. Which you can't get right now. Something you've been talking about on and on, the used used car prices are 20% over sticker right now. I think We're starting to see a slight improvement. It's starting. But then, of course, this Ukraine thing happened and- But this is you've talked about the inflation was driven by things like used car and gas prices. Mm -hmm. Those are things that affect working class people and below. It Mm -hmm. doesn't affect the the commuter class quite as much. And I don't mean the commuter class I mean people commuting. I'm talking about people that have the option of whether to go into work or not. No offense. Yeah. 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 Look, I think I think I've beat that drum a few times, you know, talking about how I'm in a very privileged position. And I recognize that. so yes, a lot of this hurts folks who are at the what we call lower to moderate income spectrum. These are folks that have to drive their their their, their kids to school. These are folks that have to drive to work. Um, these are folks that, that work as hey the maids that come and clean houses. How do they get to those houses? They got to drive, you know. So 
you know, well, how, you know, how did those Paul, how, what can we do to help those folks, you know, is really when I think about policy, what we should be doing. And, you know, a lot of this is, you know, I'm going to go back and do, you know, uh, what has been a, a pretty left-leading policy thing of cancel all student debt. And for me, thinking about it practically, um, that would pretty much be what we call a regressive tax in a sense. It would benefit mid and upper income earners much more than it would benefit lower uh, income earners. I think, you know, tailoring sort of our approach uh, is important. And so uh, in, the, in the student loan case, it's saying, you know, I've, I've, I've been talking on Twitter and, and trying to talk to some policymakers like, yeah, cancel student loan debt for folks that tried to go to school and didn't complete and haven't completed for a long freaking time, right? You know, so something happened. Those are folks that are probably not making a lot of money. That student loan debt is probably hampering their ability to move to a maybe better or safer apartment, to get a better or safer car, to be in a better or safer school. That's sort of what we should do. I, if you, you know, you know, if if you're making hundred thousand dollars a year and you have a, and you still have fifty thousand dollars from an English degree debt, I don't know what to say. I, I could. See, I'm not, I'm not against the concept, I guess. I'm very much against the application of how they're talking about doing it because mm-hmm. there's better ways. You're just going to wipe it off the books and then the predatory lending situation that is the student debt economy, and that's what it is. It's a doesn't get in fixed. and of itself. It's going, it's going to make it worse. It's going to perpetuate it. Doesn't, it. it doesn't get fixed because you don't fix the incentives. No, because they're just going to crank up tuition more. It, you're, the education bubble, instead of popping and readjusting, which is what needs to happen, as painful as that's going to be, it's just going to expand now because you just wiped off one of the indicators that's going to make it go. Listen, I think you can tailor. I mean, so that's what they, you know, you can you can tailor it to, to actually help people that still really need it. Let's keep in mind we're still dealing with a K-shaped uh, economic recovery. What is a K-shaped economic recovery? Folks like myself. Um, our, our, our earnings have, have, have probably even kept pace or outstripped inflation. Uh, we certainly brought down our costs, right? I don't commute anymore. So, you know, I don't, I don't have transportation costs anymore. Uh, I don't eat out. So my food costs got a lot lower. Uh, even if food costs rise, I don't eat out. So that's cheaper. Um, and, you know, so, so that's been good times for folks like me. And for folks that are lower down on the economic spectrum, their unemployment rate is still elevated. They, um, you know, are starting to see opportunities to, to move, but, and to get better jobs. But the fact is those jobs are just now starting to pop up, um, you know, and those jobs might not be in the places that, that these folks are. And so, you know, and then they have to deal with, as you said, higher energy costs. They have to deal um you know, with higher food costs, right? We haven't even talked about the fact that, hey, does anybody remember that Ukraine is basically the weak capital of the whole world? (laughs) And um, I know we've been very American-centric, but you know who consumes all the Ukrainian wheat? It's Africa. And so we're staring at a famine potentially in Africa. And we're not even talking about that. Yeah, African pivot 3.0 or whatever we're on now. Jericho Hill, our good friend, economist, covering a lot of ground. Jericho Hill, uh, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media. You've also got an excellent little newsletter going that deals with housing. 
uh, recommend people check out. Let folks know where they can find you, my friend. Thanks for the reminder because it's middle of the month, so I need to go update my newsletter, which is jerichohill.substack.com. It's called Quigleyan, which is named after John Quigley, a very famous and dead housing economist, someone that's, that did a lot of good for helping us understand housing econ. Um, just keep people wondering. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Motoconomist, uh, and you can seemingly find me on Herntel on a semi-regular basis. Um, yeah. And you know you'll get me to talk if you mention wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, we need to do a new wrestling one sometime soon because I got a lot of thoughts about what's going on with that stuff right now. But yeah, but I, I, I you know, for folks that maybe didn't know the reference, I just want to explain it. So Scott Hall was a wrestler. One of the most important things about Scott Hall was that when wrestling was in its greatest heyday in the mid to late '90s, um, Scott Hall and another wrestler named Kevin Nash jumped ship from the uh, top dog WWE promotion to the WCW Southern promotion with Ted Turner. You know. Um, and basically jump-started a, a ratings bonanza where wrestling was actually cool and you could wear wrestling T-shirts out in public and feel like you were actually cool for about two to three years. Um, that, so he was a pivotal part of that. That was probably one of the biggest moments in the wrestling industry. Um, he, though, had a lot of personal demons. He had a lot of personal issues. Um, he, uh, basically turned into a drunk and just a, a drug addict and awful person. And then at the last moment reached out and got help from a former wrestler turned yoga coach, the diamond Dallas page, who's actually legit, um, and got him fixed up 10 years ago, got him sober 10 years sober, you know, and got him to the point that he could go back out there and meet the fans, dissipate, be backstage, even get inducted into a hall of fame. Um, and so while we're all, a lot of us are very saddened, you know, that he's, he's passed on, uh, we were talking earlier and I said, I'm really glad that, you know, he got to end his career on a high note where he was able to be back and contributing and, and be a great, um, you know, role model at this point, you know, and get to basically have his curtain call that, you know, everyone we hope gets to have because more often than not in professional wrestling, that's not the curtain call that pro wrestlers get. Yeah. And curtain call was a sly inside reference too that I got and a few others will get. Uh, Scott Hall, we should say he died uh, complications from surgery. It wasn't something untoward. It wasn't unlike, unfortunately, yeah. too many wrestlers, bad things happen. He had uh, a heart attack and then had a series of heart attacks, uh, complications from surgery. He was 62 years old, but I'm glad he got the redemption story. All right, buddy, we'll get around to talking just wrestling one of these days. Thank you for your time on economics today, though, sir. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Have a great day. Hey, we're glad you're in heavy rotation. Appreciate it. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done.